This meeting is being recorded. Good evening, everyone. We are recording this episode on Friday, January the 27th at 7.02 p.m. And Agent Freddie Blish has been busy again. Uh, he's, he's the behind-the-scenes show agent. I you know, wish the Hollywood scouts had the, uh, the, the eye for talent that he does in setting up interviews. And we are joined tonight by Mr. Steve Tarani. How are you doing, sir? Good, Lee. How are you? I'm making it. I'm making it. What else would I rather do on a Friday night but sit here and talk to you? <laughs> uh, if you would tell the audience about yourself. Sure. Um, uh, started out heavily involved um, as a young man in the martial arts. Um, you know, if uh, I spent quite a bit of time in Los Angeles uh, training with Guru Dan Inosanto, who was the long-term training partner of Bruce Lee back in the day. Uh, and also the conservator of the Filipino martial arts and Indonesian arts. And um, he was a springboard for my meeting other masters from other countries. And I spent time in those countries. I went and trained in Japan and trained in the Philippines and also in Indonesia, places like that. Uh, so if anyone of our listeners needs a sleep aid, you can look at stevetarani.com and uh, look at my uh, martial arts background. Uh, soon thereafter, I ended up working for a Pershing County Sheriff's Office, so I was a deputy for a short time, and then then was um, and then worked as a federal contractor for uh, different agencies, um, and one of those was uh, CIA Central Intelligence Agency, uh, for whom I ended up eventually working for full time. Uh, as a full time employee, I was in the uh, protective programs and. Uh, the responsibility of that uh, division is to protect U.S. assets overseas uh, to include facilities, personnel, and uh, operations. So that's my strongest background is in um, protection. So I come at it from the protection angle um, and uh, uh, ended up uh, receiving my instructorship uh, in the different uh, defensive tactics uh, training arenas uh, to include a central training academy and other uh, federal training uh, facilities. Um, and then my firearms side of the house was of course, you know, through the eight different agencies, pretty much did everything for everybody with three letters and a vowel. And then, um, you know, also with the Department of Defense, et cetera, uh, FLETC graduate, you know, the whole nine yards, FTIP, all that stuff. So, um, and then uh, started, uh, working at Gunsight, uh, er, uh, let's see, that was uh, 90s. So I'm in my 22nd year up there on staff. Um, and uh, I'm actually, I met Freddie long before then. He was with the Marine Air Wing in uh, Miramar, California at the base there. And I, I met him there and we you know, did work together there. Um, and then I ran into him again up at Gunsight phenomenal teacher phenomenal teacher phenomenal human being as you probably know <laughs> yes sir, yes, sir. Uh, and uh, speaking of really good instructors um i also teach uh, i taught for almost 16 years at sig arms academy i still I, so way back then in the early days was um let's see bank miller uh george harris um all the guys who founded the sig academy way back when it was a tiny little trailer in the woods in the middle of nowhere, not, not nothing what it looks like today, of course. Uh, so in uh, other ranges across the country, Florida, uh, train at um, 
and uh, teach at Homestead and at uh, Defender Outdoors in Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, uh, Artemis Defense, shout out to the folks at De Artemis Defense in uh, California, Washington, all over. So I basically train at uh, all the ranges uh, that invite me to come teach. Um, most of what I do now, I still have some federal contracts for training and stuff, uh, but um, I do um, you know, work with the sheriff's offices, police departments, stuff like that, and an occasional civilian class here and there that I'll teach. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Bank Miller. Yeah. Uh, I did not train with him. We presented at the same conference one time. I was in one part, one area teaching at the same time he was doing another, and I didn't know who he was. Ah, and I, yeah. I just saw this name on the on the <laughs> other list of presenters, and it was later that I found out uh, who he was. And I'm like, I wasn't teaching at that time. I, I could have gone <laughs> and and taking a classroom and uh, that's one of the the regrets you know you can't get to everybody no 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 there's there's so many good good teachers out there and um you know that's kind of the the core of this uh of our conversation here with uh mm -hmm. training um most of what i do now is train the trainer but um i still enjoy the teaching at, at the um at the end user level you know uh, uh -huh. no greater joy as you know as an instructor than than empowering another you know, right. Um, in general terms, what can you tell the audience about the uh, the protection side of the agency? Um, so there's different divisions, and um, you know, uh, just like any protective service of any three-letter agency, you know, you you you're assigned to a specific uh, protectee or protectees. And, um, you know, it, most of what I did, uh, um, you know, you're, you're just given, hey, this is what you're doing. Your, your boss tells you what to do, <laughs> that kind of thing. When I got out, I ended up working for uh, different agencies in the world of protection. Um, it worked both overseas and uh, CONUS here. Uh, you know, um, high profile clients that don't want their names shared. Uh -huh. Uh, and um, also I did assessment, uh, security assessments for corporate, uh, corporate clauses and things like that. So mm -hmm. uh, when you do executive protection overseas, what is the legality of carrying a firearm outside of the U.S.? <clears throat> so um, if you're working for Uncle Sam, it's all based on, you know, what the rules and regulations are for that agency. And also you have uh, State Department involvement as well. So if State Department says no guns, no guns. You know. um, and uh, even statesides, I mean, you know, you have to be licensed and, uh, you know, and actually, you know, it depends on where you're doing, what you're, what, what you're, what you're doing, where you're going, and uh, who wants what, you know. All right. uh, so I, I take it that if you're overseas, you're not able to be armed that's where your martial arts background comes into play? Uh, now that I'm, you know, no longer a federal employee, <laughs> yes, I, I cannot, and I'm not allowed to, and not authorized by, by uh, you know, the Department of State. So, uh -huh. yeah, and also, you know, I got to share this with you too, Lee. Um, my, one of the classes when I was uh, coming through the academy at the agency, um, there was a, a very high profile retired Secret Service agent there, who'd been on for many, many years. And uh, he, he was retired and he was teaching this class. And um, 
you know, here you have a bunch of these protective agents. Uh, you know, they're all, I'm a little guy at 6'5", you know, so we're all these uh, silverback gorillas and, <laughs> and we're listening to this guy and he's the real deal. He's been there, done that, you know, checked off all the boxes, has the t-shirt and the worn shorts. And he says to, and, and by the way, we also had to qualify on different weapon systems. And if you didn't qualify, you didn't, you, you couldn't deploy. So, so, so firearms were a really big deal. And the first words out of his mouth, day one, training day one, class one, hour one was, if you boys go to guns, you failed. And I'm thinking, whoa, what, what does he mean by that? Well, all the gorillas kind of looked at each other and, you know, knuckles forward. Some of us were flinging poo at the cage door. And he said, think about this, boys, you know, in his, in his, uh, in his, um, uh, per perception, firearms, he likened the firearms to the lifeboats on the Titanic. He says, I got an idea. He goes, how about look for an iceberg? And if you see an iceberg, drive around it and, you know, avoid the threat altogether. And he goes, how about, but if you failed to look for an iceberg and failed to see the iceberg and crashed into the iceberg, then do you need to know how to use the lifeboats? We all kind of nodded, yes, you know, but uh, the whole idea was, you know, if your first response is go to guns, think about, you know, what's going to happen to your protectee. They're going to receive the <laughs> the opposite end of that two-way range, you know. Uh -huh. So um, so I really learned, you know, a lot about, you know, how going to guns is is worst case scenario, like a, like a uh, you know, a spare tire in your car. And it really made sense to me as as the years went on, as I you know got more and more assignments and did different things, and I started to realize, well, hell, you know, if you're reacting, you're not being proactive. And in fact, I've written a couple of books on that. <laughs> One of them is uh, your most powerful mind, uh, your most powerful weapon, which is how to use your mind to stay safe. Your most powerful weapon is available on Amazon.com. And what that originally was when I was teaching other protective agents, it was what are the tricks in the trade that you can do with your soft skills so that you don't need to go to hard skills. So that's kind of my niche was the awareness-based training, which by the way, I'm gonna run a little uh, question on you, Lee, if you don't All mind. Right. Go right ahead. <laughs> All right, think about, you know, even with your law, including your law enforcement background, Mm -hmm. Think about think about when you were four or five years old, if you can think that far back. Yep. <laughs> and then up to about 10 minutes ago, in all that time, what percentage of that space and time would you say you used your hard skills compared to the percentage where you didn't use your hard skills and you maybe just observed something? What percentage would you put to the hard skill side? Oh, hard skills other than training, like actual utilization would be way less than 1%. And that is the national average. When I asked that question nationally, tens of thousands of folks that have gone through the training, it's all the same between one and 2% right around there. Uh, and then all the rest is soft skills. So here's another question. Do you believe that those percentages will change from here going forward? I do not. Okay, so that's my whole point is those who understand and practice their soft skills will have less or very little need for their hard skills. Uh, you know, in law enforcement, 
if you're having you might have to use the hard skills because you're trying to arrest someone and they don't want to go and that's not something you can drive around you know taking the law enforcement out of the equation boy the percentage even drops much more dramatically it well right. below right oh yeah think about you know the average civilian whose job it is not to arrest the people you know and uh and you know you have to exclude specialty operators and things like that uh -huh. but, you know the yeah. the average earth walker you know right. with uh, it's it's under two percent <clears throat> so um in my book i discuss the details of what that is um how you can develop your mindset uh, which in that in that case it's not just a word it's mental toughness resilience you know that kind of thing perseverance all that and then um, how do you develop your awareness and how do you use your awareness to control your environment? Okay, can you give us an example? Uh, sure, yeah, so um, here's one. Um, and I'll, I'll use you again, if you don't mind. Sure. <laughs> uh, have you ever looked at your watch to see what time it is and looked at it again? Oh yeah. And why did you do that? Because uh, I looked without seeing. Yeah, very good. Excellent usage of terminology. Um, there is a uh, um, you know, Henry David Thoreau. Um, it's not uh, what you look at that matters. It's what you see. So what that means is, and you said it, and that's the word, is your mind has to be engaged with the process. If your mind is not interacting with your environment, then you're just looking and not seeing anything. Uh, you know, I... One that pops to my mind along in that area right there is, you know, you walk up to a business and you pull on the door and the door's locked and then you start looking for the hours of operation sign. Well, it was there the whole time, but it wasn't, right. you didn't look for it until you needed it. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, driving home past the same exit you do every day and you just drive mm -hmm. right by it because your mind is somewhere else. You know, mm -hmm. it's that mental engagement. And um, the book goes into more. I mean, there's much more, but uh, that's kind of a little example of engaging the mind. Uh, didn't you have a book called Prefence at one time as well? I did, and I'm re. It's uh, I'm rewriting it because I have a new revision. Lots of that I wrote it back in 2012, and many yeah. things have happened since 2012. Our our entire society has changed. <laughs> so so I'm upgrading the book. Uh, it'll be out here again pretty soon, in the next month or so. Um, and also, I should mention this. Uh, Prefence, not only the book, but there is an online course that will be available at a university, and you can actually take training, uh, university-level training in preventive measures. Okay, cool. Wow. So when, when that comes out, I'd be happy to, you know, pass more information forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think our audience will be very interested in that. I know I am. Um, you know, this, as I said, we're Friday night, January the 27th, recording this. It's 717 here, so it's 617 in the central time zone. I suspect things are about to get sporty in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> um, based on what I've been seeing in the news there. So yeah. if you were dropped into Memphis right now, you didn't have a choice. Uh, you were traveling across country and you stopped for the night and you woke up and all of a sudden all this is around you. What are you looking for? <clears throat> well, you know, you got to look, you got to assess your scenario. The step one, you know, what am I, where am I, what am I doing? You know, uh -huh. the fact that I even, I'm a big proponent of preventive measures, being proactive, you know, so knowing what I know, I heard about it a couple of days ago, knowing what uh -huh. I know, 
I wouldn't go anywhere near there. <laughs> uh, so I wouldn't. <laughs> Memphis is bad enough on a on, on a good night. Um, yeah, the election night of 2016 when uh, former President Trump was elected. I was actually traveling out west to attend a class. I was in, well, west of me. I was in Des Moines, Iowa. And I didn't know how the the results of that election were going to be taken. So I'm looking at my roots back uh, from there. And it's like, okay, I've got my choices of St. Louis or Memphis. <laughs> to get to get back to Georgia, and like neither one of those are uh, are optimal choices. Uh, but I diverted down and came back through Memphis for the sole fact is I have family in the Memphis area. I have lots of friends in the Memphis area, and and in surrounding. And I don't have that in St. Louis to the same extent. It's like if stuff's touching off, at least I got where somewhere to go. Right, right. That's smart. Yeah, you always want to have a plan B. You know. So, very good. Uh, um, You know, we got every major city is always on the verge of uh, of unrest, it seems like here lately. Uh, What are some warning signs that our audience can be aware of? You know, you you got to stay aware. You got to, you know, it's it's advisable in the in the world of protection. We run what we call advances, you know, where you go to look and see what's going on, or you'll you'll send someone to do a open source intelligence, uh, you know, a protective service in the in the terms of protective intelligence, that kind of thing. But um, you know, for, forewarned is forearmed. The more information you can get and process and make an educated decision, a decision, uh-huh. good information in equals a good decision out. All right. Uh, any other awareness tips you would have for the audience? <clears throat> well, you know, um, <laughs> as a person who's heavily inv- spent a lot of time overseas, very involved in the world of hard skills, I have found the answer is soft skills. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you can get <laughs> if you can get some training, you know, and as you get older, I mean, you know. Uh, we're not the 21-year-old Terminators like we used to be back in the day, uh-huh. you know, where you could bounce off granite rock. You know, as we get older, you know, you, you want to rely less on your hard skills anyway. <laughs> you know? uh, I was traveling with Steve Havey, who in the Grim World is the Magnificent Steve, uh, this past weekend. And uh, we were several states away from where we live, and there was a restaurant kind of down the street from the hotel and i had stayed in this area one time previously training and he said well hey what about that restaurant down there and i was like well i thought about eating there last time i pulled up at mill time and there was no one in the parking lot but one vehicle and it was really sketchy and people milling about it so i left hmm. and, and he kind of laughed and, and uh, talked about some other acquaintances of ours that were in las vegas for the shot show uh last week and we're talking about some place they went yeah to, to, to eat and they're all talking about how bad it was he says you know here we are all talking about this stuff you, you know some some of them go to where the danger is and some of us see it and leave right right, <laughs> you know, right. This, this is where to be um you know i, I sometimes find, I have more time finding that balance of 
you know, I can walk around wherever I want to. This is America and it's free, but sure. But there's also, you know what? That just doesn't look right over there. I don't need to go. Right. You, you know, the, the whole, the, the secret, the bottom line is don't put yourself in a situation that puts yourself in a situation. Right. And the, the one thing that sets off my alarm bells is people milling around in a parking lot without a purpose. Right. Right. Um, if I see people, you know, they're getting out of their car and they're walking to the door or they're coming out of the store and walking, you know, and it looks like a direct line for a car. They don't particularly set off my alarm bells. But if I see somebody, they're standing around and there's nothing, like they're doing nothing, you might be what they decide to do. <clears throat> right. Uh, so there's two types of indicators. This is in my book. I'll share this piece again. Sure. Um, two indicators. One is an event indicator and the other is a threat indicator. An event indicator is, you know, if somebody takes their foot off the brake and moves it towards the gas pedal, what does that indicate? It indicates the car is going to go faster. Someone reaches for a doorknob. That indicates the door is going to open or close. But if you see something that gets your attention, piques your interest, gets your, you know, your concern up, that is a threat indicator. Threat indicators need your attention. And the, the, the majority of problems that happen is when you ignore, you either fail to observe or ignore a threat indicator. Your martial arts background, could you go into that in a little more detail? <clears throat> sure. Yeah. No, I was uh, super interested. I did traditional martial arts, you know, Japanese Aikido and stuff like that. Um, ground fight. I loved Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. It was great until I blew out my shoulder. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I did, uh, you know, Muay Thai, Filipino martial arts. Um, I was drawn to the uh, Indonesian arts and Silat and things like that. Uh, and I focused predominantly on edged weapons, impact weapons, uh, the exotic weapons of, uh, you know, flexible weapons, things like that. Um, so I spent a lot of time in, in that. Um, pretty much my full-time uh, uh, venture, and, and then eventually I reached a certain level of skill, went to the Philippines and then went to Indonesia uh, to complete my training. You're never really done, you know, you just go to the next, like shooting, you know, it's, yeah. you, you're improving your performance and maintaining your skill, but there's always, you know, there's always that next level. Hmm. So, so the difference with me though, is that, um, you know, I do have that extensive defensive tactics background, but I'm also a shooter. And so what I noticed in the eighties and early nineties, yes, I'm that old. Um, the, uh, you know, back in the day at the Academy, they taught you, okay, here's your DT, you know, this is an arm bar. And then uh, you go over to the and you go, and never the and you go over to the range and they teach you this is the front front sight. So mm -hmm. never never shall the two wor worlds meet, you know. So so I took it upon myself to be the bridge between two worlds, the bridge between DT and uh, firearms training. Yeah, I remember the academy. I was taught the chicken wing come along and the armbar, and that yeah. was it. Yeah, uh, and that was it. And I remember the first time I tried to use it, it didn't go quite as well as it did in the academy <laughs> with a mostly compliant uh, partner. Right. And it's like, well, th th this is this isn't what I was expecting. <laughs> they told me if I did this, the person would have to do what I wanted them to do. Yeah. And I can only think of one time where the chicken wing actually worked. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, excuse me, not chicken wing, the gooseneck, gooseneck. 
Uh, yeah, where you bend the wrists forward mm -hmm. and bend the elbow yeah. and the wrist. Yeah, yeah. I, the only one time did that work, and that was in actually a big civil disturbance situation, uh, which is a polite way of saying sports riot. And oh. um, I ended up tackling a guy in the middle of all that. And as we got up, I managed to get the position uh, of the gooseneck on him. And he's like, I was in the Coast Guard. I know this move. I said, well, you know, this is going to hurt then. And I cranked down <laughs> and uh, walked him back to the crowd. And he was kind of like half on a foot, half on a knee as we went, made it back to the crowd. And I kind of shooed him along after that. Uh, but that was the only time any of that stuff worked. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, you know, an arm bar take down to escort somebody off of something uh, works. But for the most part, it was kind of like, you know, we're left to dogpile was the only thing that was out there. Yeah. Well, you know, that's why, you know, way back in the day when they had the, the, the old wheel, you might remember that use of force wheel. First you do this, then you do that. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like it is today where you just right. go to whatever it is. But right. you know, back in those days, you know, we had to go through A, then B, then C. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> so, but, um, you know, that, that brings up a point about, you know, about the shooting, you know, it's like, you know, you have, and I work with similar people, you have your shooters, and then you have those who wear a gun because they're supposed to. So, so that's, <laughs> there's the, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a difference between the two, right? So those who choose to shoot, you know, luckily, you know, you you mm -hmm. you see them. They're always at the range. They're training, you know, right. and then they get uh, they go to classes and things like that. Right. And then, you know, um, the national number, believe it or not, for law enforcement, civilian law enforcement, is five percent of cops train on their own time with their own dime. So it's a small number, but you know, they're 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 the ones that go that extra mile. And yeah. they're usually, you know, they're usually uh, specialty team guys, you know, mm -hmm. usually, um, but, uh, but they're committed, they're, they're, they're devoted to their art. Right. I was at the range yesterday with one of our guys, and he, he was trying to evaluate whether or not he wanted to spend the money to get a, a pistol and pistol mounted optic. And so we went down to the range and I took one of mine with, within, and we ran through a series of, of drills with it. And at the end, he's kind of like, yeah, I think I want to do this. And so we start talking about the, the cost of doing it. Cause our agency, if you want the, the optic, you have to buy the pistol, buy the optic, buy the holster. Um, and so he started running through the cost of doing it. And I said, now understand this is my bass boat. This is my motorcycle. This is my bowling. This is whatever. This is my hobby. So I, I spend the money on this kind of stuff. And he kind of smiled and said, yeah, I like whiskey and I like buying rare collectible whiskeys. And I said, okay, this is your, this is your whiskey allotment for a couple of months is the only way to look at it. And uh, so I think he's going to go ahead and make that move. But uh, you know, I like going to the range and shooting, but I would dare say that I'd probably be better off doing physical training and martial arts and defensive tactics it, it's all it's all a um, in my humble opinion it's what do you do which one you're going to most likely use mm -hmm. and you know you got to kind of be uh you know are you going to be a specialist or a jack of all trades you know so you kind of have to make that choice but i believe in proficiency in every aspect you know if, if most of the time i'm going to be using come-alongs as opposed to you know um 
I'm just making this up, you know, high, high op tempo um, potential uh, firearms response. You know, you never know, of course, but, you know, look at what the last year, you know, how many, you know, OIS in one year versus, you know, 10 years, whatever, you know, so you can work on those kind of percentages, but I believe you have to have both. In my humble opinion, you should be adept. If your job requires you to handle someone physically, you need that physical skill. If your job calls for you to stop the threat, you need to stop a threat. And I believe you should have the requisite skills to meet the demand of that employment. And I'm also a believer of, you know, let's say your qualification, I'm going to make this up. It's 100 points, you know, and passing is, is 65. Well, if you're a 66 shooter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's room for, let's say there's room for improvement, right? right. <laughs> and you know how it is. I mean, and when I ran the range and I did, you know, stuff mm-hmm. for where I worked, you know, when I would get on the loudspeaker and say, gentlemen, this is your official qualification, you could hear all the butt cheeks slam together so hard that you couldn't drive a needle through that with a sledgehammer. So yeah. it's like, Okay, pucker factor 17, because, you know, a lot of these guys, that's your job. If you fail the qual, you're, you're off the team. Right. So, you know, but hey, don't think about training, you know, I mean, why would mm-hmm. you do that? You know? Yeah. So, you know, instead of coming into it scared, how about have the confidence? Hey, I've been there. I'm familiar. I could pass this thing with one hand, you know? Yeah. Uh, to that effect, one year I experimented. Uh, with having the guys at the range running a class and ran them through a course of fire and didn't tell them it was their qual until after the fact. Nice. And it was amazing the difference in the confidence level of the shooters. We're just shooting. Right. Yeah, we're, we're, we're teaching us stuff. We're practicing. And then all of a sudden, all right, your qual score was a whatever yours. And that, what? That was my qual score? <laughs> and, and they didn't get the, uh, the, the perker factor, so to speak. Right, it, right. Yeah, the monkey's off the shoulder, you know. And, and it's kind of hard to uh, to pull that rabbit out of the hat more than once on a regular basis. Um, right. But I'm told of a certain three-letter agency that has, um, not yours, that has a qualification, excuse me, a firearms instructor course. And every day, one of the drills or tests that they shoot at randomly is the go or no-go test for that day. And the candidates don't know which one of them it is. But every day there's some scored course and that determines whether they come back for the next day uh, to complete the program. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, that would be, that's an interesting take on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, there's uh, there's some agencies that if you're not deployed and you're at your stateside, you are um, every Friday at 1600, you mm-hmm. qualify. And if you uh, fail, you don't show up Monday morning. That's yeah. Uh, uh, serious serious level of skill though because you know those guys they're yeah. constantly training if they're not out yeah. Yeah. uh so so i want to go back to this if it's okay to go back sure. to this bridge between dt and sure. uh, and shooting so when i was uh, uh i was getting out and i was doing private um you know protection work and uh <clears throat> you know I, I i thought hey you know i've been shooting at the time i've been shooting for something like 20 something years mm-hmm. i thought okay i'm pretty good you know i'm a I'm a 99 shooter and all this stuff. But when I got out and I, and I was exposed to the world of competition, I thought, wow, what a difference between, because, you know, you know, any agency you work for, whether it's federal state or, or, or municipal, you know, you, you, you have your, 
you're, you're trained to, to your qualification. There is no training available above that. Right, if you right. want to get better than the highest scale of your, you know, your qual ceiling, you have to go outside the box. Mm-hmm. And so my first foray outside the box was a jaw dropper. When I could see what these guys were capable of, I thought, OMG, I, right. you know, I obviously need some training. So, um, you know, to this very day, that was about, uh, let's see, 2008. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long that's been, you know, right. 13 years, whatever it is. Um, I have taken uh, uh, as many classes as I can with, you know, grandmasters and masters uh, and um, have worked on my performance shooting on demand performance to become a better shooter. And you can apply that performance, whether you want to apply it defensively or whether you want to um, apply it, uh, um, you know, in competition. Either way, in my opinion, shooting, shooting, you either have a high level of skill or you don't. <laughs> In other words, you know this, man. You either pass your calls or you don't. <laughs> right. Right. I had a similar experience. Um, you know, I had gotten to a point where the agency call was a given. I was going to shoot either a 99.6 right. or a 100. Right. Those, right. those were my scores. Um, I would go to a class at our state training center, and I'd always be in the top two or three people. Yep. And I thought I was good. And then I ventured out to an IDPA match and got smoked. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Right. There, there's something else out here. And, you know, so, I, so I, I got hooked and started going back. And I saw a rapid progression up until a point where I plateaued and it started to be kind of counterproductive. And um, so I, I ventured back more. That's when I ventured into the open enrollment training world and found people like Tom Gibbons and Dave Spalding and the like. And, um, but you know, you can be competitive in those environments, but it's not shooting a match necessarily, um, right. uh, on those lines. But one other thing I would like to ask you about with the integration of defensive tactics and firearms and watching a lot of the horrendous use of force videos out there, there's probably a couple that I start in, yeah. uh, uh, it seems to me that the lack of true physical skill and lack of confidence in firearm skill is what leads to a lot of bad decisions. Do you see that nexus? Well, you know, it's, um, in my humble opinion, you will default to your comfort zone, Mm -hmm. you know, what you feel comfortable with. And if you're, I'm just making this up. If you're a 66 shooter and, Mm -hmm. and uh, 65 is passing, you know, that's you shooting on a good day at 66. Now add yeah. all the complexities and the and and the and the la- the layers of um, you know you've got multiple factors to include. You know, you're fighting for your life, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, you're in a really nasty situation. Um, your adrenaline's pumping. Your heart rate's accelerated. Yeah. Um, you know, you have these different layers of complexity added upon. Uh, whatever your default is and your performance is going to be X percent lower because of those external factors. Yeah, it's, yeah, I would say I feel more comfortable on the gun side of things, but that's also the least likely of the scenarios. And then you've got your, your, um, you know, you have to worry of course about, you know, is this an appropriate use of force? Yeah. You know, could I have handled it another way? You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, is it a tactical response? Is it a shooting response? Right. Um, you know, do, should I do A or should I do B? But you're, you know, hopefully you're thinking ahead 
as you're as you're observing the scenario unfold, making those decisions based on that information of your right. mind engaging with your environment. All right. Yeah. Just, uh, just, go ahead. The uh, the thing about the, the the hands and there is a class that I teach, and in fact I teach it with Rob Latham. Uh, there is a uh, you know Rob's you know if not the most decorated uh, shooter out there. Um, he is, uh, <clears throat> you know, we haven't really checked for a belly button, so we're not sure, but he's, <laughs> he's, he's unbelievable the things this guy can do with a gun. Anyway, so he is doing the performance piece and I am doing the bridge piece, you know, the DT, mm -hmm. the firearms piece. And we have a program called Hands to Guns and handstoguns.com if our listeners wanna learn more about it. The next class is, we do one a year, and this one is in February, February 10 through 12, which is a weekend. It's in Mesa, Arizona, and uh, it is hand, hand to gun. So handtogun.com. And what that class does is it focuses on the bridge between, you know, conversational ranges. You know, you're, you're at bad breath range, which is, you know, someone pulls a knife on you at that close range. You absolutely do not have time to go to guns. So you need to control your personal space, I call it battle space, control your battle space into a situation where you can get to, maybe it's just another two feet, but whatever it is, you have to control that space with either your hands or your gun. You can't just stand there and get whacked. Yeah. You know, it's for Science Institute did a study on uh, drivers pulling firearms on an approaching officer on a traffic stop. And the natural inclination for the officers to tend to try to create distance and draw their own firearm. Well, the problem with that is that you're taking fire the entire time you're doing that. Right. And the correct answer based on this, that, that specific scenario coming out of that study was to attack the firearm in the guy's hand and try to control it and divert the muzzle. <laughs> yep. And until you have learned that and conditioned that as your response, that's not what you're going to do. Yeah. No, you know, you're, well, it depends on the range. If you're within mm -hmm. contact range and you can get your hands on, I agree. If you are mm -hmm. kind of in between and not quite at contact range, then change angle. So that makes him react to you. Mm -hmm. You know, so it depends on your distance and what you're doing. I go way into that in the class right. more in detail, right. but, you know, being able to right. manage the scenario, you know, the mm -hmm. firearm may not be your primary response right. based on distance. Right. And of course, you know, this scenario was set up for you, you really only had two options was one, either attack the gun or two retreat, because, you know, paint the picture for the audience. If you step to your left, you're stepping out in oncoming traffic. And if right. you step, if you step to your right, you can't because the car is blocking your path. Right. And so that environment, you really only had those two options. And that's different if you're on your feet out in a parking lot somewhere. Yep. Yep. Uh, and also, you know, talking about the average person who doesn't need to do a traffic stop. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. Always, you know, you want to keep a controlled range mm -hmm. where you can change your position relative to the threat and allow yourself exits if you can, you know, but always be thinking of either changing distance or changing position. All right. All right. So, um, go ahead. No. I was, I was going to go back to the uh, evolution because we absolutely, absolutely. We were kind of talking about that earlier. And uh, 
So, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I liked, I, I enjoy doing is, uh, is training with, I mean, of course, I always am a student. I'm a, the eternal student. And in my humble opinion, teaching is part of learning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think this, uh, this bridge between the DT and the firearms was one thing, but I also was learning about, you know, especially a lot of what I do now is I convert I write for a bunch of different magazines on different topics for firearms training, um, but I also have contracts to convert departments from, you know, irons to red dot or, you know, whatever, whatever there's going on there. So I work a lot of the, you know, kind of conversion stuff in that sense. Uh, and then um, how to teach teachers how to teach. So you can have a phenomenal operator, somebody who's been there, done that, checked off all the boxes, the best, a tier one government operator, but he couldn't teach his way out of a paper bag. And then you have great teachers that, you know, didn't carry a gun for food. So, you know, finding that perfect balance of someone, hey, you know, when I was carrying this and doing that and, you know, and can teach, that's the rare combination. So um, a lot of times I'll get to work with really good guys and, and work on their teaching skills, you know, so not so much a basic instructor course, but how to you know, once you're, once you're, you know, how to run a line, you know, how you develop plans, all that stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. What tips can you give us on those lines? So um, <clears throat> when it comes to the shooting, you know, people who, you know, I, I, I want to be a better shooter. <laughs> okay. Me too. I want to be a better shooter too. <laughs> so, you know, uh, being a, a diagnostician, being able to diagnose what you're looking at, you know, some of those tricks of the trade, uh, you know, like uh, some of the grandmasters can look at you and say, and really that I like their teaching method. They never tell you what to do. They tell you what to stop doing. So I don't know if you're familiar, you know, Michelangelo would look at a block of granite and he would take away with his chisel and his hammer. He would chop away the things that don't need to be there to leave the sculpture. And the same thing I believe with improving your shooting, learning how to shoot well, is remove those things that are are less effective that don't serve you that are in fact costing you time so it's an interesting methodology for an instructor okay can you give a concrete example or <clears throat> sure yeah so um <clears throat> you know you have someone that uh um you know every time they come out of their holster you notice now they don't notice it because they're in and they're in there looking out, you know? So they come out of their holster and they move their chin forward and they tilt their head down and they look through their eyebrows. You know, they don't know they do that, but it's costing them damn near quarter of a second to, to you know, because it's not an efficient usage of time. Mm -hmm. So, and then when you tell them, look, you're, here's what you're doing. You're putting your chin forward. You're bending your forehead. You're looking through your eyebrows. Stop doing, well, no, I'm not doing that. Oh, really? So then I, you got a cell phone? So I grab the cell phone and I film them and then I show them. And then they're like, oh, that can't be me. Like, well, who the hell else? <laughs> so so uh, I, you know, I am guilty you, as charged on that one. <laughs> when you show them, you know, when you show the shooter mm -hmm. what they're doing and they see uh, it, it immediately, you know, it's a great teaching tool. It's like, okay, now uh, I see what you're doing. Yeah. All right. Well, that kind of gives us a great segue into the evolution of firearms training over, over the years. Uh, I went to the Academy in January of 99 and we were taught at that time, a very aggressive locked out 
stance that the competition shooters, you know, call the tactical turtle. And, you know, that's how I was taught to shoot. And, you know, once I've made it into the competition realm, I learned, okay, this is kind of handicapping me here. Uh, what things have you seen come through over the years that were seemed like they were good ideas when we were doing them, but later we kind of saw this isn't the best way to do it. Yeah, no, that's a, there's a, I, I've heard this term thrown around and I like it, institutionalized inbreeding, where we do that because that's the way we've always done it. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I guess that's a good enough excuse, but not if you want to, you know, you want to increase your, your skills. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, uh, you know, different agencies had in those days, different uh, stances, you know, you had everything, you know, the wide gamut from, you know, uh -huh. this foot forward, that foot forward, um, feet parallel, uh, you know, shift your weight this way, that way, bend your arm like this, lock your arm out, you know, uh, all those different um, uh, requirements you had for your agency's stance, so to speak. And then, you know, um, and when Latham and Enos and those guys came along and altered the world with the isosceles and the modified isosceles and, you know, it changed the, it changed the game. And now you can't go to an agency and not see something similar to that nowadays. So that's yeah. been an evolution, just the stance in itself. Yeah. But also the mindset, you know, looking at as a mental approach as well to shooting, you know, uh, let me, before we even go to that, let's look at the gear. You know, you and I grew up on iron sights where mm -hmm. your focal plane goes onto the threat and you identify shoot, no shoot. Then where does your focal plane go? Back to the front sight. So you do that enough times, like 30 years, you're going to not even think about it. Your focal plane will go back to the front sight. Now, all of a sudden, all your right. department switches over to a red dot system. Mm -hmm. And now there's no need to bring your eyes from the from the target back to the front sight because there's no front sight the sight radius right. goes all the way to the target so trying to break a scar like that is i mean it's one of the most yeah. difficult things you can do to a shooter who's spent his entire career shifting his focal plane back to the front sight that was one of my biggest hurdles as i tried to to adopt the pistol mounted optic uh, and not looking through the body of the optic as if it was a rifle scope. Right. Uh, and it, it took me quite a bit of extensive effort to actually make that transition. And, um, you know, it's one of the things I think that the younger guys coming on that are trained under with pistol mounted optics aren't going to have that problem. No, no, not unless their the optic goes down and they got to deal with their backup sites, you know. Right. But, but uh, even at that, you know, even at that, at that distance, you know, the most shootings occur, you're not going to have, you know, too right. much of an issue. You know, Mark Freaky raised an interesting question here recently. It was, you know, we teach these systems for, you know, going to your backup irons. You're doing other alternate enemy techniques with the optic or the, or the profile of the gun. But when we run those in classes, everyone knows, all right, we're using, doing this technique. We're doing you know, the other technique, et cetera, when the student's optic actually fails, how much time do they spend looking for the dot rather than just go ahead and transitioning over to one or the other or the options? Absolutely. And you know, you're going to do in real life what you're doing in training. So unless you don't, I mean, you know, we, I have my guys every once in a while turn your dot off 
you know, right. we'll run a, run a program or a course of fire with the dot off mm -hmm. and they're surprised. Oh my gosh, I don't even have a dot and I'm hitting. Well, yeah, yeah. you know, it's because you're, <laughs> you're, you're using the housing and that's what you're supposed to be doing, you know? <laughs> so. Uh, um, you have an affiliation with Gunsight. You said you've been teaching there since the 90s? I do, yes. Um, uh -huh. I uh, went through, uh, uh, yeah, let's see, I think it was uh, early 90s. Um, I was introduced to um, Ed Stock, who was there back in the, Ed's retired now, but he, uh -huh. he was uh, one of the range masters at the time. And during that era, I worked with, um, you know, it was the old crew, uh, Ed Stock and his brother Giles, uh, uh, Pat Rogers, Louis Arbuck, Randy Kane, you know, the old, the old, uh -huh. the old wrecking crew, you know, and uh, great guys. And it's, that's one of the things I really loved about working there was, uh, and still do, is the wealth, the tremendous wealth of knowledge of the multiple disciplines the instructors bring from their careers and their training and their background and and we would have these you know skull sessions where you'd you'd trade information and and you know what do you what are you guys doing about this you know that kind of thing that was the most valuable part of that instructor to instructor exchange it's priceless you know you, you can't find that long before the internet by the way <laughs> yeah uh, yeah tom Givens talks about uh you know back in the day this was all done via letter or at like big matches where everybody would sit around and talk. Yeah. Uh, you know, now we can just all we get on a Zoom phone call and, yeah. and do it. Um, what stories can you share about some of those old guys? Or let's uh, just say more experienced guys. We don't want to call them old. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, well, I had, um, <clears throat> you know, I had a couple of mentors there that, uh, uh, you know, I've been so used to my background as sitting at the feet of the master, so to speak, mm -hmm. literally, you know, in some cases, in my case. And um, one of my mentors was a, an, an elderly instructor, even at that time, Bill Mon. And uh, Bill uh, was a, um, you know, unbelievable background. He, he mm -hmm. World War II era uh, Marine. He signed up with the Corps when he was uh, 15 or 16 years old just to get into the war. Um, he was uh, PCS in the uh, Pacific Theater, um, and so you know, at war with the Japanese, um, <clears throat> where he ended up, uh, you know, multiple multiple decorations in World War II. Ended up staying in Japan. Get this, through 1945, and he, a couple of years later, in a judoka, he was a judo guy training in Japan in the 40s in judo with one of the top judo players in, wow. in the country and he walked away bill is an unbelievable um let's see i when i met him uh, uh early 90s i was um you know young man and he was already like in his 70 early 70s maybe something like that and uh he was throwing me around i'm a 250 pound six foot five gorilla he was tossing me around like a rag doll I thought, okay, I want to learn more from this guy. You know? so, <laughs> so, and he was, of course, you know, he's a BAR guy, a um, Browning automatic rifle. So he was right. this guy, you know, he's, he's, uh, he stopped a lot of threats, let's say in World War II. Uh, right. Then uh, while he's doing that whole thing, he gets called to the Korean War. He's still a Marine, goes to Korea in 1950 and is, ends up in the Shozon Reservoir. He's one of the uh, frozen Shozon, you know, yeah. and, uh, he is, um, 
you know, during the war, that was, uh, uh, you know, the, the holidays, November, December, and uh, first, first Marine Division, X-Corps, all that. And he was, I mean, he survived. He lived through it. As you know, it was one of the most brutal battles, if not one, if not the. Mm-hmm. And he got blown up and shot at and all this stuff. And and I and one time I asked him, I go, Bill, what is that scar? Because he had the oddest looking scars, like these straight lines on his forehead. I'm like, what are yeah. those? He goes, Oh, that's when I got ran over by a tank. He says, you know, he got, I don't remember the whole thing. He explained yeah. it. How he got you know, re- percussion. He got knocked on his back in the mud yeah. and, and the way the mud was soft enough that it only, the track only caught a part of his head and all this. I'm like, Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so, and then, you know, he's telling these stories about how it was so cold that, you know, they were under, they didn't have the right gear and, he was mm-hmm. teaching his guys to put the newspaper inside their boots to right. add another layer of warmth and some of the stories. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He survived. And then he went from there to Vietnam. He was a quote unquote oh. advisor under the uh, Kennedy administration. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all know what that's all about. Right. Um, so fought in three wars, came home, um, competed in the, of course, he's a hell of a shooter and uh <laughs> Competed in the uh, police Olympics in, in both in in, shoot, in shooting and also in judo. And of course, he dominated and right. um, amazing guy and his wealth of knowledge. Just, I mean, those are the kind of guys I liked to learn from. They've mm-hmm. all been there, done that. Three war veteran with tremendous, tremendous physical skills. Um, just a stellar individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you mentioned his his age going in. Uh, we would be remiss if we did not point out that this week was the anniversary of Audie Murphy and the action in which he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's where his sister provided an affidavit falsifying his birth date uh, <laughs> so, so that he could get in. And you know, he was rejected by the Marines and yeah. actually was rejected by the Army the first time he attempted to, to enlist and um, uh, later is accepted. And of course, you know, if there's a movie out there that he starred in based on his autobiography uh, called yeah. The Hell and Back for the audience, if, if you're not familiar with that. And it's just that generation. You know, here he was, he was 18 years old uh, when he first goes into battle. And by the time he's 19, he's already a first lieutenant. Yeah, from so some private to first lieutenant uh, through all that. And then, uh, you know, the action in which he was awarded the Medal of Honor, uh, he stood on top of that burning tank destroyer for an hour, uh, directing fire with the radio and shooting with his M1 and the tank's machine gun until he ran out of ammo, then goes back to his men and leads a counterattack. Man, that's yeah. just something else. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. that's, uh, uh, you know, and, and you compare that to now, you know, right. young men who having a, having a hard time because of their pumpkin spice latte and finding a parking spot at at starbucks you know so right a little bit difference in generations i think yeah um you know being here in georgia the braves are the uh, you know the the local baseball team of, of choice for most here uh the braves moved from downtown atlanta out to one of the suburbs uh marietta that area here several years ago and the news stories that came out about that. And then, you know, they're running, walking around with the camera. What do you think about the Braves moving? And there's one guy just talking about how it was the worst thing that had ever happened to him, that the Braves were moving 30 minutes away. 
from Atlanta to Marietta. I'm like, wow, you have lived a charmed life, young man. If, uh, if this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There's a difference in, it's why they call it the greatest generation for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, uh, my, my grandfather was a rifleman in the uh, Italian uh, campaign. And uh, came home, he, didn't, he never would talk about things. Occasionally I would ask a stupid question and he would give me an answer. Um, but he had a scrapbook that he kept stuff in and I've got the scrapbook now. And um, two of his brothers were also in, in World War II. One was killed in action. And just before the other brother died, he gave me a lot of information that I've been able to go back and verify. But uh, I ended up working in a grocery store in high school in the produce market and I worked with a man named Mr. Jack and uh, my grandfather worked in that same grocery store when he died I was having a really hard time with it and uh, one day Mr. Jack comes in and says I got something to show you because you'll appreciate this he says look under the counter and there was a brown paper sack folded up and then I pull it out and it says silver star and the, and the citation and I'm sitting there reading it uh, this guy cleared a minefield under fire so his unit could could maneuver and he came home and he worked spent the rest of his life working in a grocery store in the produce market and he was like yeah, i don't tell people about this but i thought you would appreciate it and you would understand huh. and it's just that whole generation my grandfather came home and worked in a, in a grocery store in a meat market the rest of his life yeah and you know it's just if that was the world they lived in and um, i had the pleasure of hearing a guy speak at a memorial day event here a couple of years ago that was went into the navy as an enlisted pilot for world war ii ended up making it all the way to being a, a naval captain and they got inducted and sent to a naval flight training school at the at clemson university just over in south carolina and there was a guy that got showed that showed up for that training that did not have shoes and they get them in, they get outfitted, give them their uniforms, feed them. And they've been like for the first whole week or so, they've been going through getting, you know, all their meals, everything closed. And on like on Friday, we're like, all right, report to such and such line for your pay. And he said, that guy turned around and said, you mean they're going to pay us too? Hmm. It's just a different world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Different world. Uh, who are some more of the influential people that you cross paths with? In the- <clears throat> well, I um, I instantly hit it off with Pat Rogers. He and I, mm-hmm. you know, because he at the time I was uh, I eventually when I moved to Virginia, he was in Virginia and uh, we worked. Um, you know, we both worked at Gunsight, but he also worked. Uh, he had a road. You know, he had a company EAG mm-hmm. where he was on the road and mm-hmm. um, uh, ITOG. He did some stuff with other companies. And I worked for some of those same companies and he and I did some stuff together and um, <clears throat> I got to spend some quality time with Pat and uh, I found out that he worked for one of the agencies I worked for and I didn't even know it. So we, we had a lot of common ground there. Um, you know, there's a lot more to Pat Rogers than most people think. Uh, but he was a riot, of course, you know, he, he either loved Pat or you didn't, you know, that was one of those. And uh, <clears throat> anyways, lots of stories about Pat, but um, rock solid, uh, very analytical. Um, you know, he really knew how to break things down. And so, you know, let's say that this, the class was having an issue. 
um, you know, he would, uh, okay, here's what, here's what we got. He would break it down to its, you know, sub particulate and he would, he would iron out each one of those pieces of the puzzle and then put it all back together. He was very, very good at that locating, uh, isolating and eliminate, eliminating, uh, problems with shooters. It's very good. Uh, he was also a writer, you know, he, there's a lot of his, uh, uh, stuff that's still out there that, um, you know, again, he's, he was a, a gear evaluator. He was, a you know, his, his wealth of knowledge as a tactician and um, believe it or not, um, he was also very well read and, uh, and was, a, was a much sought after writer. Oh. <clears throat> and uh, I went to, um, you know, interesting, uh, you know, when I was talking to, speaking of Gunsight, you know, talking with uh, Cooper a couple of times, he would, uh, he would always call me his, uh, hey, hey, go get my Italian knife fighter. <laughs> what? <laughs> what the heck is he talking about? So, <laughs> that was his, you know, he didn't even know my name at the time, but uh, <laughs> eventually, you know, he invited me up to the house and, uh, and um, you know, he didn't know anything about my, my background. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I, he, so I said, yes, sir. So I go back to the house and, you know, in his living room, if you, if you look from, there's this archway from his living room to the, his study and above the archway is the sort of Pizarro or a replica of it. And I said, oh, that's Pizarro's sword. And he just looked at me like, how the heck do you know that? And I go, well, you know, Francisco Pizarro. And I go through the whole, you know, uh, mm -hmm. 14th, 15th century conquistador, you know, the mm -hmm. Incan Empire, the city of Lima and Peru, blah, blah, blah. I gave him the whole history. And he was, from that point on, we just talked about, you know, the history of edge weapons. And he was a historian. So he really knew his and, he, and few people know he had a, a, a heck of a of an edged weapons worldwide global edged weapons collection. So he knew what a, a Kanjar was. He knew what a, a Panabas. He knew all the different types of blades in history and what country they were from and all that. And um, we had you know long talks about the different types of. He was into blade geometry and the and the ancient uh, you know the Elizabethan era. Uh, duelists like Giacomo de Grassi, Vincenzo Saviolo, uh, Achille Marozzo. He knows all those guys and he studied that. And I'm like, wow, for a gun guy, you really do know a lot about edge weapons. So anyways, I did a couple of interviews with him and this was way back. That's when uh, Roy Huntington was still working for uh, American Handgunner way back in the day. And we did a special on that um, from a couple of my interviews with him way back. And from that point on, you know, he then was able to pronounce my last name, and, and uh, <laughs> I got I got to um, introduce the first edged weapons program at Gunsight, um, Edge Weapons One and Edge Weapons Two, uh, created in the mid '90s, and they're still they're still there today to this very day. Um, and he's a big fan of um, you know the integration of going from hands dealing with an edge weapon. You know, he really understood that that gap between responding, or in his words, bringing a gun to a knife fight. Right. Yeah. So very interesting. And, uh, you know, I got to say the breadth, the depth and breadth of knowledge of the instructors up there is, is really, to this very day, I, I still enjoy, you know, my time there. And, and uh, even now with um, a lot of the old timers have retired, you know, uh -huh. but the, the younger guys coming in, you know, multiple deployments in the box, tremendous background, phenomenal experience in sharing their knowledge. As you know, tactics change, 
gear changes, you got to stay current or you're, you, you become a dinosaur, you know, so. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's one of the things that's been enjoyable about doing this, this show is being able to talk to so many of the first generation gun guys, uh, got, or, you know, that trained with Cooper and then that, that went out and did their own thing or stayed at Gunsight and just being able to get some of this stuff documented because if we don't do it now, we're, we're going to lose it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, no, none of us are getting any younger, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. and, uh, and the things that, um, the things that a lot of the ranges are going to not, not just at Gunsight, but other ranges that are, you know, there, um, you know, there was, there was the, always this battle between, uh, you know, well, he's a competitor and he's a defensive guy. Okay. All right. So one of them is a gamer and one of them knows tactics, but whenever that little indicator goes off, whether it's a shoot, no shoot, you decide to shoot as a tactician, or you hear the buzzle buzzer as a competitor, mm -hmm. when it's time to shoot, it's shooting performance. And so shooting is shooting. And I like that there has been a trend in recent times towards the development of performance shooting, which can be applied either tactically or um, you know, competitively. The old timers don't, oh, they're gamers. Well, yes, but look at how well they shoot. How would you like to have a grandmaster level skill set? I like to use the term that I heard not too long ago, a surplus of skill. How would you like to not have a surplus of skill and be able to manage 15 splits at the 10 yard line? <laughs> you know, and handle that at that level and no tactics. What's wrong with that? What's your opinion of that? Oh, obviously there's nothing wrong with that. I want to be as good as I could. Um, I think at a certain point though, that with the split thing is that uh, we can outrun our headlights, so to speak, and right. we can shoot, shoot the gun faster than we can make decisions. Um, and a controlled environment where like lead draw and shoot six shots on that target, I can give you sub 30 splits. Um, but that's, I know I'm drawing and firing five rounds, five, five or six rounds, whatever. Uh, the fastest I can shoot and still be making conscious decisions for each shots is about 0. 0.4. Right. So my point is if your comfort yeah. zone is in the twenties or thirties, mm -hmm. then how hard is it you, for you to reach for those forties when you're under duress? uh it's actually harder to slow down so getting the getting the 40s is not a hard but let's say you're 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 now not you but another right. shooter their default is 60s yeah. how hard is it for them with 60 splits or 70 splits you know uh for them to actually get hits at any kind of speed is becomes very difficult right it's, it's not hard for them to press the trigger that quickly no but i'm talking about a hit factor right but it is hard for them to get this, get their hits that quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I know that the big thing that gets out there on all the internet right now is the, the whole sub second draw and this time of the first draw. Where I see so much of people being so slow on that is indecision on the first shot because they don't trust their skill level. Well, let me, let me even add to that, Lee. I'm going to add to that. Um, when you, when you present this argument, please feel free to steal this and sure. use it yourself. Sure. So here's an incident. A, you have to be in condition yellow. If you're not, you're not going to see it. Right. Okay, let's say you are, for the sake of our argument, you're in condition yellow, mm -hmm. and you observe a threat indicator. Oh my gosh, that guy's got a gun in a shopping mall. Well, let me ask you, does that or does that not take time? Yes, it takes time. 
Okay, good. Now you're processing that. Your brain's going, uh-oh, guy's got a gun. And let's say you're with your family. Now you have to make another decision. You have the capability, you have a firearm, you have the skill, but you also have a door behind a, black, a, um, a brick exterior wall. And you have to make another decision. Do I shoot and stand my ground with my family? Or do I depart this area, leave this, this harmful area with my family right outside this door here at an exterior wall? Does that decision take time? Yes, it does. And then your decision ends up being, no, I can't do that. I have to go to guns. You decide, and then you have to clear your garment and all this other, the mechanical skills it requires. So before you even get the first round off, roughly how many, how many seconds is that prior to the, even reaching for your gun? Uh, if you're doing it all incrementally, you've had two or three seconds go by at that point. Right. So are you ahead or behind the power curve? You're behind. Exactly. So that's my whole point is, you know, you've got to get to a point where you can, the, the better your observation, the better your ability to absorb what's around you, you're going to have good information coming in to make rapid decisions in, as, as quickly as possible. Right. That is a factor and it's often overlooked. All right. um, I will say you could make some of those decisions in advance as well. Um, for instance, if I'm in that situation and I've got my family with me, the option to go out the door is what I'm going to take. I've already made that decision. My my job as you know family member and protector of my family is to get them to safety rather than attack danger. Right. Uh, if I'm out lone sombrero at the mall, I feel like my obligation as a deputy sheriff is I have to confront that danger. And so the different roles that I'm in are going to dictate my response to a certain degree. And, you know, but those are pre-decisions, I guess, that I have made. Um, you know, I would also argue that you can shorten the presentation of the firearm from the holster in that situation as you're being confronted with that. You can go ahead and clear all the cover garment and get your hand on the gun and be in a holstered ready position right. as you're making your moves. Right. And not necessarily having the gun out. And just in my rough experimentation with it the typical average is hand on the gun uh when the beep goes off actually takes off about three quarters of a second on the presentation yeah as does your your what you call your preventive decisions mm -hmm. you've made the decision ahead of time so you uh, know cooper talked a lot about that right. you know making the decision yeah. if this happens then then that yeah. you know so if you've already got that predetermined and you've made that, right. you've, you've shaved time on the decision-making process as well. Right. And I guess a better way of saying hand on the gun would be the zero to one step on the, on the presentation. Right. Uh, you, right. Know, on the, you know, with the traditional four count presentation mm -hmm. is I've already done everything that I would do on the one. And that is the most time consuming uh, portion of the presentation. <clears throat> and also what you said about making your decision ahead of time, that saves time as well. Hey, if I'm with my family, we're moving out the door. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've already made the call. You don't have to waste time deciding what to do. All right. All right. And if you spot danger coming, say, okay, I see that guy over there. He doesn't look right. If he turns and starts in my direction, I'm going to do X. Versus, I wonder what that guy over there is doing. You, you can make decisions before you're actually forced to make the decision. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.
Yep, provided you have, you know, your level of awareness. I mean, a lot of people, you know, you, you've seen them like I have, you know, they're looking at their phones, they got the earbuds in, they walk, literally walk into walls and poles. I've seen that. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yep. Uh, people just, uh, they get so wrapped up in these cell phones, it's like they suck their attention. Uh, the whole world goes right into that screen. And if your and, mind is not on your environment, you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to process relevant information. All right. Well, what else would you like to talk to talk to the audience about tonight that I have failed to ask you about? <clears throat> well, I think we covered everything. We talked a little bit about the evolution. We talked about some of the great instructors up there at the ranch, and uh, uh -huh. um, you know, and I, I I wanted to bring up the value of uh, of the bridge between hands to guns and um, and how that how that applies to all of us. I mean, whether you're sworn or unsworn, you know, and you are with your family, you know, you you may have to handle a situation with your hands. You may not have the opportunity to go to guns, or right. firearms may be inappropriate at that distance or whatever it may be. So just key key learn points, teach points that I always bring up in my classes, and food for thought for our listeners. And uh, there's, as you know, plenty on the internet to, to sniff around on, on all that as well. All right. Um, if you would run run down again, uh, where people can find you online, what what classes and products you have upcoming? <clears throat> sure, sure thing. Um, thanks, Lee. Um, so the um, the website is steveterani.com, uh, T-A-R-A-N-I.com. And uh, I have all my schedules, my, my uh, you know, civilian schedule, public information is all listed on the schedule there. Uh, I also sell, I have a few books I've written. So those are for sale. One of them, Your Most Powerful Weapon, which I advise anyone who wants to kind of take a peek into the, into the protective services world of how we do things, you know, uh, from the pro preventive measures standpoint. Mm -hmm. And also if I could uh, uh, remind our listeners again um, of the hands to gun class coming up with Rob Latham in uh in february 10 through 12 those who are interested is the information for that on steveterani.com uh it is but the, the you can also go directly to hands to gun.com right. sure. and that's uh that's mr latham's site and uh you know you can see the whole what it's all about um price and all that stuff is there and it gives you good background and good information it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty high level class. You know, Rob is a no nonsense performance shooter, and he uh, and uh, you know there's not a lot of, not a lot of standing around in that class. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine not. I expect it's going to be pretty pretty action packed. All right. Well, Lee, I appreciate you taking the time and um, and and, uh, and inviting me on the show. And uh, you know, Freddie speaks very highly of you and. Uh, I think you're doing a good thing by uh, sharing this information with especially other instructors and, and people who really want a closer look at how they can improve their performance as well. Well, sir, thank you for, for coming on here tonight and, uh, and, and sharing all your time with us. And, and thanks to Freddie for arranging this. <laughs> Very good. And then, Lee, I'll give you a shout when that uh, prefense program comes out because sure. lots of folks have expressed interest on it and it's something mm -hmm. you can do. You can you know, you can sign up online. It's with a, it's with a uh, very respected online university sure. and um, extremely valuable information on how to develop your awareness so that you could 
rely on your soft skills and not need your hard skills. There you go. Uh, I really liked that analogy of looking for icebergs. I think that's going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you boys go to guns, you fail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that analogy. Yeah. And, looking uh, for icebergs. Yeah. That's a good, I like that. Yeah. There you go. Well, sir, again, thank you for, for joining us tonight. You too, Lee. Uh, to the audience, we know that your most important asset is your time. And after, if you're watching this on YouTube, you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, after you do that, uh, thank you for choosing to spend some of your time with us. <laughs>